be seated. Amen. Thank you, Sam. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, take it and turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Happy New Year to you all. Each new year brings a new set of exciting seasons, exciting adventures, joys, opportunities to praise the Lord, glory in His goodness. Each new year also brings new hardships, new trials, new seasons of uh, grief and despair. Um, when we look ahead to the new year, we, we at CBC, we like to take this first Sunday to just kind of recalibrate our thinking and focus on all that we're expecting and hoping for in the new year. And just thinking about the goodness of God, we, we stop, we, we've uh, thought about making the most of the time for the days are evil. We've thought about uh, teaching God, uh, God teaching us to number our days. We've, ta- we've thought about the sovereignty of God. We've thought about trials. We've thought about so many different things over the uh, New Year sermons that we've studied together as a church family. But one of the things that we've never really stared at together, not only on a New Year's Sunday, but also really ever as a church, is doubts, doubting, struggling with belief. Doubt is a normal part of the Christian life. It's normal. Everyone doubts at some point in their life. And I I just pray right off the bat, if you have come here this morning or if you're tuning in on the live stream and you are listening to this message, you've come here with some aspect of doubt in your soul or in your heart. I pray right now you would be honest with that and just bring that to the surface and let God's word address it this morning. There's no use in coming into this room And putting on a facade of saying, I have no doubts. I've got it all figured out. I'm good to go. Today's the day to bring those doubts to the surface. I would encourage you, today's the day to talk about those doubts with other people, specifically with the ammunition of this text behind you as you speak in fellowship with one another after the church service. Doubt is a normal part of life. C.S. Lewis wrote this about doubting and about faith. He says this, Now faith is the art of holding on to things that your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change whatever your, whatever your reason takes, whatever view your reason takes. I know that by experience. Now that I'm a Christian, you remember C.S. Lewis was an atheist, now that I'm a Christian, I have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. So he says, even when I was an atheist, I had my doubts about atheism and thought that Christianity was probable. Now that I'm a Christian, I have doubts that Christianity might be improbable. He goes on, this rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. That's why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they can get off, speaking of like a a bus or a train in England where your mood can leave now. Now it's time to, to, to be over with your doubt. You can never be either a sound Christian or a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs, really dependent on the weather or the state of its own digestion. Uh, I love that. You remember in uh, Christmas Carol, right, when uh, Scrooge sees Jacob Marley and he says, how do I know you're real? You might be a, a bit of undigested beef, You might be just a blob of mustard. There's more of gravy than of grave about you. Maybe based off of what I eat, it's changing my mood. Maybe based off of what I eat, it's changing my doubt and my belief system. I have Taco Bell last night. 
Maybe there's no God. I have Chipotle last night. God exists, right? <laughs> Doubts are true about everyone. Regardless of your background, regardless of your creed, regardless of what you believe. So the question is not if you're doubting or whether you have doubts. We all do. The question is, how do you respond to your doubts with wisdom? How do you respond with wisdom? Maybe this year is going to be filled with doubts that you never thought you would ever have. Maybe you have left 2021 with doubts there, and you're already bringing them into the new year, and you're wondering, what do I do? I'm doubting God's character. I'm doubting God's goodness. I'm doubting the word. I'm doubting Christianity in general. What do you do? That's what I want to address this morning from our text in Luke chapter 7. There are a lot of places we could go to talk about doubting. There's a lot of famous doubters in the Bible, probably doubting Thomas being the most famous. But I want to look at a man that I highly esteem and revere in the scriptures. We actually looked at him before Christmas as the forerunner to Christmas. I want to look at John the Baptist. He's a different doubter, but he's a doubter nonetheless. And you'll see that as we read our text this morning. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18, reading all the way down to verse 35. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. This was John the Baptist, the disciples of John the Baptist. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, the coming one, the Messiah? Or should we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one, the chosen one, the coming one, the Messiah? Or do we look for someone else? At that very time, or in that very hour, Jesus cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. He gave sight to many who were blind. He answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. When the messengers of John had left... Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purposes for themselves, not having been baptized by John. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? What are they like? They're like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another. They say, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. Son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all of her children. Let's pray together. God, as we come before you and we are privileged yet again to open your word, 
We want your word to open us. We want your word to do what it promises to do of dividing between joy and marrow, rightly dividing the, the spirit and the intentions of our hearts. God, we've all walked into this room with some form of doubt, whether it's doubting some aspect of your character, whether it's doubting some aspect of your, your love or your goodness, whether it's doubting that you care about us, that you're working for our good. Maybe it's doubting a specific promise in the, the Bible that you've given to us. And God, help us to be honest with our doubts, to take them to you this morning, even as John took them to you. And I pray that you would be gracious to us, not because of anything that we've ever done to earn this or deserve this, but be gracious to us to work in us now to show us Christ, to show us his greatness, to see the ways in which he answered John's doubts and to let him answer our doubts this morning. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. Reveal our hearts to us as your word penetrates deeply into our souls. And lead us in the everlasting way. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. In Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35, we will find four amazing realities about doubt. Four amazing realities about doubt. And I want to say right up front, um, I, I've had the privilege over many years, about 15, 16 years now, to uh, be a part of summer and winter camps playing music, leading worship through song. And one of the joys of doing that is that I get to lead worship uh, through song and then sit down. And I've heard so many sermons during summer camps and winter camps. Uh, and it's just been an amazing experience to just hear those sermons, to hear uh, sitting with students and sitting with college students and, and hearing the word of God preached. And a dear friend of mine, a dear brother in ministry, his name is Jesse Johnson. Uh, a few of you might, might know him. I've actually heard him preach this text three different summer camps, one winter camp, two summer camps. Uh, and so I can't uh, do any better than he did with his points. I would agree 100% with his four points. So I'm going to use his four points today um, and just thank him for that. Thank you, Jesse. In verse 18, we really are in the middle of the chapter, and we're really in the middle of a day of Jesus doing incredible things. If you go back just at the beginning, in chapter 7, the headings, my Bible says, a, servant, a, a centurion's servant is healed. Remember that Gentile centurion says to Jesus, I have a servant who's sick. And Jesus says, I'll go with you and help him and heal him. And the centurion says, you don't even need to go. I know you have so much power. You don't need to go with me. Just say the word. And Jesus says, you have more faith than anyone in Israel. And then the next heading, a widow's son is raised from the dead. As if it wasn't cool enough for Jesus to perform a miracle from long distance, now he raises somebody from the dead. It's an amazing uh, few miracles that Jesus performs. Verse 16, because of that, fear grips everyone who's there watching, and they all begin glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And the report's just going all over the land. This man is unlike anyone else. God is with him. God's performing works through him. He must be God himself. He did all of these signs and wonders. And so that's why verse 18, the disciples of John, the Baptist, reported to John what Jesus was doing. He's doing all these miracles. He's doing all these signs. He's doing all these tremendous uh, wonders. 
I say that all, all to say there is no shortage of evidence to convince anyone of who Jesus is. They've seen him do all of these miracles. They've seen him do all of these signs and wonders. And in the midst of these miracles, John is going to send two of his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the Messiah? Why? Why is John sending disciples to Jesus to say, I have my doubts and I'm concerned and I'm confused? This leads us to the first reality about doubt. Number one, doubt comes from unmet expectations. Doubt comes from unmet expectations. Some people think that doubt comes merely from a lack of evidence. If I could just see a sign, if I could just see a wonder, if I could just see a miracle, then I'd believe. I wouldn't have any doubts. But clearly that's not the case here because John is giving the report. He's given a report from the disciples. Jesus has done all these miracles. And yet John still says, I have my doubts. And the pastor who did uh, our premarital counseling would often tell a story of a student in his ministry who would come to him and would say, I know that God's not real because last night I asked God to prove to me that he's real by shaking my bedroom curtain. And it didn't wiggle. And so God must not be real. But doubt doesn't come from a lack of evidence. Because if that curtain did wiggle, it's not like this student would all of a sudden be overcome with, hey, I believe everything and I'm good to go. There would still be doubts. We see that in the Bible, right? You see Gideon. Remember Gideon in Judges chapter 6? Gideon says, I don't know if this is really God's plan. I don't think I'm supposed to be involved in this, you know, gathering together 300 people to fight the Midianites. Probably not my thing. God, prove to me that it's really what you want. And you remember he tests the Lord. He says, hey, let's put a fleece out, make the fleece wet and the grass not, and then let's reverse that and make the grass wet and the fleece not. It's not like after that first time, Gideon says, oh, that's it, I'm good to go. No, I need another sign. Let's do it again, just in reverse. And then it's not like after the second time, Gideon goes, that's it, I'm good. He keeps on doubting the whole time. He really never stops doubting. So evidence is not an end-all cure to your doubt. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, if I just had more evidence, if I just had a sign, then I would know for sure. I think our text this morning would say that's not the case. Evidence has its place, yes, and we're going to look at that even this morning. But it wasn't that John the Baptist needed more evidence. Think of all the evidence that John had of who Jesus was. That's not the issue. Here's the issue. The evidence wasn't matching John's expectations of who Jesus was going to be. That's the problem. It's not the lack of evidence. It's that the evidence doesn't match the expectation of what John thought Messiah was going to be. Now, John had a better theology than most people did in that day. But John also had part of the cultural theology of who Messiah was going to be infused into his understanding. Yes, Savior from sin, but the cultural reality was also Savior from Rome, Savior from our oppressor, Savior from a political oppressor, and freedom in the land, in peace, and in prosperity, and in safety. We're going to look at that next week when we look at Revelation chapter 20. God has promised a kingdom of peace, prosperity, and safety to Israel. They've never had it. They're going to have it in Revelation chapter 20 in that future millennial kingdom reign. They're going to have it. John just thought it was going to be then. It was going to be now. It was going to be here. And instead, not only is Messiah not conquering the Romans, but the Romans are conquering the good guys. John the Baptist is in a prison about to get his head chopped off. And so I think John the Baptist just says, time out. 
I thought I knew who you were supposed to be, and you performed all these wonders to prove that you are that person. But I'm in a jail cell. You're not defeating the Romans. Why am I in prison if you're supposed to be the one who's to come and release the captives, to set the prisoners free? Understand the, the danger here? If John could doubt with Jesus living in his midst, then we surely can struggle with this as well. So here's my question to you this morning. What are your expectations of the way that God is supposed to be working in your life? What are the expectations that you have of the way that God is supposed to be working in your life? And this is where, if we're not honest about it, no growth is going to happen. What did you expect when you became a Christian? And maybe God isn't meeting that expectation, and that's driving some of the doubt that you're experiencing. Maybe you thought, if I have integrity in my academic ventures, I'll have success, and I'm struggling. Maybe you thought the same for the workplace. Maybe you thought, I'm going to glorify the Lord in my studies. I'm going to graduate. I'm going to get a degree. I'm going to get my dream job. I'm never going to switch. I'm never going to change. Everything's going to be happy because I love God and he's going to lead me and direct me. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you thought you'd be married by now or have a boyfriend or a girlfriend by now. Maybe you thought you would have a child by now. We could go down the line of expectations. I thought that God's goodness meant that he was going to treat me differently. I thought that God's sovereignty meant that he was going to work such things in my life that I'm going through in despair actually for my good, but I don't see the good happening. I don't know what it is for you, but I know that you've walked in through these doors with unmet expectations that drive doubt. I know that we all have that. We all have expectations of who God is, who he should be, how he should be working. And here's the reality. Our expectations about what God should be doing, especially as it relates to our own lives, they're a very weak way of measuring truth. Your expectation about how God should be working is a very weak measurement of what is actually true. John, for instance, he's in jail, and he thinks that Jesus is not performing and doing everything that he was supposed to do as Messiah. And actually, Jesus is right on the money for how he's supposed to be working as Messiah. There's nothing going wrong with the plan. The plan's going exactly as it's supposed to go. John's in jail. Jesus is seemingly doing nothing. And yet Jesus is working exactly the way that he's supposed to be working. So, doubt doesn't come merely from a lack of evidence. No, more often than not, it comes from unmet expectations about God and how he's working in your life. So what are we supposed to do when we find ourselves in this situation? What do we do next when we honestly identify, I have doubts because I have these unmet expectations of the way that life is supposed to be working, and it's not going that way. What do we do next? That leads us to reality number two. Doubt is countered by going to Jesus. Doubt is countered by going to Jesus. So doubt comes from unmet expectations, and once we have that doubt, we have to go to Jesus because our doubt is countered by going to him. This is in verse 19. The disciples of John report to him all the things that Jesus had done. And so summoning the two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected one, the coming one, the, the chosen one, the Messiah? Or are we supposed to be looking for someone else? That is a fantastic claim to be making. 
Just think about what he's saying. I baptized you in the Jordan River. I declared in front of everyone, here's the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And now I'm thinking I should go back on that because I don't know if you're really who you claim to be. So, verse 20, when the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? Notice what John does. When John has doubt about Jesus, he goes to Jesus with his doubt. He goes to Jesus. He sends these men to the Lord. He seeks out Jesus. In all of his doubt, he knew that Jesus is the only one who could overcome the doubt. It seems very counterintuitive. Why would I pray to the one that I'm doubting? But that's exactly why we need to go to him, because he's the source. He's the one who can answer our doubts, answer our fears. We need to figure out what he's saying and how we've misunderstood and had wrong expectations of who he is. So John sends these men to Jesus. And just think about if you were Jesus. And you get John's disciples coming to you saying, hey, we want to know, are you the guy or should we be looking for somebody else? How would you respond? Here's how I would respond. What? <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. You know who I am. You leapt in your mother's womb when you heard the announcement of my birth. You baptized me in the Jordan River. You saw the Spirit descend like a, a dove. You heard the voice from heaven. You declared that I'm the, the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And now, what, what's changed, John? I would have had harsh, harsh words for John, which is why I'm not the Savior and I need a Savior. Jesus instead, before he answers, verse 21, at that very time, literally in the text, at that hour, in that hour, maybe it's a one-hour span of time, Jesus just starts performing miracles. He doesn't say a word. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, should we look for another? And he just, I, again, sanctified imagination. We don't know this. But I just picture Jesus with like half of a smirk, right? Are you the guy? Are you the Messiah? Did we, did we pick the wrong person? Should we be looking for somebody else? Can you give us some answer, Jesus? What should we tell John? And Jesus just smiles. It's just in his mind, watch this. And for an hour, just miracle after miracle, power and sign and wonder after power and sign and wonder. Verse 21, he cures many people of diseases, afflictions, evil spirits. He gives sight to the blind. And then after that hour is up, verse 22, he goes back to these two disciples and he says, hey, go and report to John what you just saw, what you've just witnessed. The blind receive sight. It's a quotation from the Old Testament. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Go tell John what you've seen. I've done the signs and wonders that confirm who I am. Go tell John. Notice Jesus just graciously answers by saying, I'll give you all the help you need. This is why you can take your doubt to Jesus. If, if Jesus were a God like most of our man-made gods are like, he would be a God that would be frowning at you, saying, why do you not trust me? I've given you all of this evidence, and you still don't trust me. But that's not who Jesus is. That's not who our God is. Our God will not break that bruised reed. Just think of two people in the Bible. Think of two people in the Bible and how God responds to them. Think about Thomas, John chapter 20, Gideon, Judges chapter 6. Remember Thomas, doubting Thomas? Thomas is dominated in John 20 by his own negativity. 
He's dominated by it. If you go back to John 11, when Jesus says, hey, we need to go to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, Thomas says, yep, let's go back to Jerusalem so that we can die. He's just dominated by negativity. He is, in all of the senses of the word, Eeyore. He is the consummate Eeyore. Just, oh, bother, don't attach my tail because it's just going to come off again. Everything stinks in life. We're all going to die. Might as well just do it now. You can totally see him after the crucifixion in John 19. I knew this was going to happen. I told you this wasn't going to work out well for us. You can totally see him, right? Maybe with the disciples in the upper room, they're all crying. He's like, I don't know what you guys are crying about. I told you so. I knew this was going to happen. If you're a, a person dominated by negativity, we would call those people pessimists, you carefully guard any slight feeling of hope that you have in your heart. Your life verse is Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. So I'll never have hope. Therefore, I never can be sick. And then you step outside of your pessimism one day and you say, okay, I'll hope just this once. I'll hope just a tiny little bit of hope. And then your hopes are dashed and it takes you even longer to get out of that cave of negativity, that cave of pessimism. Pessimistic people don't really enjoy people who see the the world is a glass half full, right? They look at those people and kind of think, hey, snap into reality, why don't you? So I think Thomas in the upper room in John, 9, in John 19 and 20, he's not there for a while because he's like, guys, you're ridiculous. I don't want to be next to you. I don't want to be near you. If anybody's optimistic, I want out. He comes back into the upper room. They all say, hey, we saw Jesus. He's been raised from the dead. We saw him. He was here. And Thomas again dominated by negativity is like, you guys are all dreaming. You guys are all ridiculous. I will not believe. I will not believe in your ridiculous hypothesis unless I see him put my hand into his side, put my fingers into the nail prints in his hands. I will not believe. And you remember, what did Jesus do when he shows up? First of all, he shows up, right? He says, hey, here I am. First thing he says, peace be with you all. Shalom. Don't be afraid. Be at peace. Thomas included. Be at peace. Second thing he says, Thomas, touch my, my hands. Put your hands into my side. Whatever you need to help you believe, I'll give you it. Anything. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't rebuke him. And then after saying, I give you peace and I'll give you whatever assurance you need, then and only then he says, and Thomas, don't stop or stop being an unbeliever. Don't be dominated by unbelief. Stop your negativity. Stop your unbelief. That's exactly the way God works. If you come to him with your doubt, he's not going to say, get your act together. He's going to say, I want to give you peace. I want to grant you assurance. And let me help you in your doubt. This is what he does every single time. Think about Gideon, Judges chapter 6. Remember, first thing that the angel of the Lord says to Gideon, the Lord is with you valiant warrior. The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Gideon doesn't even pick up on the valiant warrior part. He just goes, uh, I don't think the Lord's with us. Look at our circumstances. If God were with us, we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in. That's exactly how we live our lives, right? We tend to see our troubles as evidence that God must have left us. Again, unmet expectation. I come to God. I'm God's people. I'm God's chosen people. I'm the church now. I'm here with the Lord. I'm a part of his adopted family. That must mean that I will never have troubles. That's a wrong expectation. 
But we're just like Gideon because we tend to see troubles in our lives as evidence that God must have left us instead of remembering that he's working through them for our good. Secondly, we're just like Gideon because we often wait for God to act instead of asking God, how can I act in the middle of all of this mess? Gideon is just sitting there threshing wheat in that, uh, that cave, just absolutely scared, coward. He's just waiting. God, you work because I can't do anything. And so he's asking the angel of the Lord in Judges 6, if we are truly God's chosen people, then where's God? Why has he left us? That's the same question that John the Baptist is asking. I'm going through bad times, hard times, bad experiences. I'm in jail. You must not be who you think you are or who you claim to be and who we thought you were. Gideon calls God's word into question. We can do the same thing as John the Baptist, the same thing as Gideon. We can ask God, you said this, I thought that meant this. What am I supposed to do? Go to Jesus with your doubt. Remember, Gideon asks for the the fleece miracles. It's a very silly way of figuring out God's will. But God doesn't say that to Gideon. God doesn't say, that's a dumb idea, buddy. (laughs) That's a very silly way to figure out my will. God says, whatever you need, I'll do it. God's not so highly exalted and lofty and above us that he's unwilling to stoop down in our fears and say, whatever you need, I'll help you. It'd be like if I'm uh, walking with my kids in my neighborhood, there's a dog, our neighbor Joe has this huge dog that's very, very uh, loud and barks and scary. And there's a big fence. There's no reason whatsoever for the kids to be afraid of this dog because this fence, wrought iron fence with the iron bars really close together. So there's no way that the kids can get hurt by this dog. And anytime we walk past uh, neighbor Joe's house, the dog starts barking, the kids start walking faster, and they, oh, I'm scared. If I, in that moment, bent down and said, what are you afraid of? Look at the bars. Like, start using reason and logic, buddy. Come on. I'd be a terrible dad. No dad would ever do that, right? I love in those moments to say, I bend down, I grab Tyler, I say, Ty, it's okay. Look, these bars, they, they make it so that the dog can't come out. You're okay. You can just say, hi, doggy. And tie through his tears, hi, doggy. And you don't have to be afraid. That's what our Heavenly Father does with us. When we say, oh, I'm scared, God doesn't go, come on, hurry up, fix the problem. God stoops down and says, whatever you need, I'm here for you. That's why we need to run to him because he's patient with us in our weakness. He responds with kindness, not with coldness. So doubt comes from unmet expectations. Doubt is countered by going to Jesus. And I I would plead with you this morning, once we're done with our service, go out to lunch with somebody, come over to our house, talk with somebody about Each point, talk with somebody about the unmet expectations that you have that's leading to doubt. Talk to somebody about going to Jesus. Go to Jesus together. Pray right then and there. That leads us to number three. Doubt is conquered. Third third reality about doubt. Doubt is conquered by the greatness of Jesus. Doubt is conquered by the greatness of Jesus. Jesus doesn't preach a lecture or a sermon. He performs some signs and wonders, and then he says, that affirms the Bible. The Bible is trustworthy. The Bible is true. He does all these miracles, and then he says, hey, remember what the Bible said about the Messiah? I did everything that the Bible just said the Messiah was going to do in these things. 
I gave the, the lame their, their feet again to be able to walk. I gave the blind their sight. I gave uh, lepers cleansing. I gave the deaf their ability to hear. I gave dead people life again. So he does all of these miracles and he says, go tell John of the glory that you've witnessed and the greatness of God that you've seen. That's what conquers doubt. God's greatness, not your rational understanding or your reasonableness. God's greatness overcomes your doubt. It's like the book of Job, right? Job is saying, God, why are you doing everything you're doing? And God does not give Job an answer. He never answers Job. God never says to Job, let me tell you why I'm doing what I'm doing. In fact, I think he's doing that in heaven right now. I think he's in heaven telling Job, hey, remember how you went through everything you went through? Let me tell you how it's working out for my glory in the midst of my people. Even right now, at this very moment, Pastor Patrick is preaching at CBC to his congregation to tell them about your story, to remind them that in the midst of their doubt, they can trust you because you're good. That's what's happening at this very moment. God never told Job, here's why you're going through what you're going through. God just said, hey, am I big? Did I make everything? Do I have power? If I do, can I have a purpose for what I'm allowing you to go through that's beyond anything you could comprehend, but you can still trust me? That's the answer. That's the whole point of the book of Job. You can trust God because you know that he has a plan that is beyond your comprehension. So you don't need to figure it out in your mind. You just trust God's got this. Go tell John everything that you've heard, everything that you've seen. And then he says, verse 23, blessed is the one who does not take offense at me. That's not a rebuke. That's not mean. That's an encouragement for John to keep believing. He's saying, John, don't be offended at my time frame. I'm working in a different way. I'm working with a different purpose than you thought. I'm working differently. But don't be offended at me at the way that I'm working. Trust me. Don't be offended about my time frame. Trust my time frame. Trust my purpose. At this point, I really wish the camera would follow John's disciples to go back to John in prison to tell them, I want to see John's reaction. We know ultimately that John fought through his doubts and died for the message of the gospel. We know that he was beheaded by Herod. I wish we had the interactions. I wish we had the two disciples speaking to John. We don't have that. And ultimately, as Luke keeps the camera on Jesus, that's exactly what John the Baptist would have wanted, right? He must increase, I must decrease. Luke keeps the camera on Jesus, and Jesus preaches. First, he says, doubt is common to everybody, even a prophet, even the greatest of all prophets. As people might have heard, John the Baptist is doubting that Jesus is who he claims to be. Jesus says, that doesn't make him any less great. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Uh, you remember John the Baptist was baptizing people in the Jordan River in the wilderness. It's a terrible trail going from Jerusalem to Jericho. There's nothing out there. That's the, the road that the, uh, the story of the Good Samaritan, that man who uh, was fallen on by thieves and robbers that beat him up and left him for dead. That's that trail. It's a dangerous trail. You, you traveled a dangerous road to get out to see John. Why? Did you want to see a, a reed shaken in the wind? Apparently nobody says anything. Verse 25. What would you go out to see? A man dressed in fine linen, fine clothing, soft fabric? No, that's for a king. That's for palaces. You came out in the middle of nowhere. Why? It's clearly, verse 26, to see a prophet. John is a prophet and he's doubting. 
Yes, I say to you, one who is more than a prophet, because he's the forerunner. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. And I say to you, verse 28, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. So, number one, he says, hey, everybody, listen up. John's struggling with doubt. I know that. I'm okay with that. That doesn't make him any less great. And that makes all of us, by the way, if we're struggling with doubt, we look at a prophet, the greatest of all people born of woman, a prophet is struggling with doubt. Surely we're going to struggle with doubt too. We're in good company. But then he says this, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Why? Because greatness is defined by your relationship to Jesus. John is great because he's sending people to Jesus, but he doesn't know the end of the story. The most immature believer, this side of the cross and the empty tomb, is greater than John because we know the end of the story. We're able to say we know Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior of the world because we know that he died, we know that he was buried, we know that he rose from the dead, and that he ascended into heaven. And so Jesus says, hey, John struggled with doubt, you're going to struggle with doubt. John's great because of his proximity to me, his relationship to me, the way that he drives people to see me. And you'll be even greater because you know the full extent of the story. John didn't. He dies before the story ends. And so Jesus says, I will gladly answer whatever objection, whatever doubt you have. Doubt comes, number one, from unmet expectations. Doubt is countered, number two, by going to Jesus. Doubt is conquered by the glory and the greatness of Jesus. Not by our reason, our rationale, not by our own logic. That leads us to point number four, and this is a very important point. This is the last point. Number four, doubt is contrasted with unbelief. Doubt is contrasted by Jesus at the end of this text with unbelief. There's a difference between doubt and doubt. There's two different kinds of doubt in the Bible. There's a doubt that has wonderful confusion about God. I'm confused. I don't understand. I'm not sure. And then there's a doubt of judgment, determining that God is unfaithful, unloving, uncaring. It's unbelief. There's doubt, and then there's unbelief. There's a huge difference between those two. A lot of believers think that doubt is somehow, you know, the unforgivable sin. I can't have doubts or else I must not be saved. Jude chapter 1 verse 22, it's just all one chapter. Verse 22 tells us, have mercy on those who are doubting. Be gracious, be kind, be compassionate. Don't harshly rebuke them. So Jude is telling us that doubt is not the kind of sin like we think it is. That somehow doubt is you must rebuke, you must confront, you must attack. No, you come alongside, you have mercy. There's a huge difference between a Christian who is doubting and someone who is refusing to believe the gospel. Unbelief refuses to believe signs. Doubt's looking for assurance. Unbelief gives excuses for why you don't want to believe. Doubt looks for ways to cling to what is true. Unbelief follows Jesus around saying, Show us another sign. Give us another trick. Doubt follows Jesus around saying, please teach me to love you more because I'm struggling. So Jesus says, in verse 29, all the people and tax collectors hear this. They acknowledge God's justice. They say, yes, God is just. Having been baptized with the baptism of John, we follow John. Now we're following the Messiah. You are the Messiah. We're going to follow you. But, verse 30, the Pharisees and the lawyers, those are the experts in the law, rejected God's purposes for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So they have unbelief. They don't have doubts. They are stuck in determined disbelief. 
And so Jesus says, verse 31, to what then shall I compare the men of this generation? Those who are stuck in their unbelief. What are they like? They're like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another and they say, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't weep. This isn't a flattering comparison. It's a weird comparison. What he's saying is the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those who are stuck in their determined disbelief, they're like kids who refuse to dance when people are playing music because they have their arms crossed and they're saying, it's not happy enough or it's too sad. We don't like it. They're, they're like kids. You know the kind of kids that you see in the group of children playing and that one kid like, I'm not going to play your games because your games are dumb, right? That's what Jesus says. That's you guys. That's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You're sitting on the sidelines going, I'm not going to dance because your songs are dumb. I'm not going to play because your games are dumb. That's the kind of people you are. You're not, you're not begging to be involved in it but struggling with it. You're just on the outside and saying, you're dumb. I'm not a part of this. They say, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, so he must have a demon. We don't like John because he has no friends. We also don't like Jesus because he has the wrong friends. We don't like anyone, right? That's the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We just like ourselves. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. You say, behold, a gluttonous man, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You have an excuse for everyone. I'm not going to get near them. I'm not going to like them. I don't like John because of his diet. I don't like Jesus because of his diet. This, the problem here is not with Jesus or John. That's what Jesus is saying. There's no problem here. The problem is with you, Pharisees and Sadducees. It's unbelief. It's determined disbelief. And so Jesus says at the end of this interaction, John has doubt, but that's not unbelief. I'll show you what unbelief looks like. Pharisees and Sadducees. Henry Drummond says this, Christ never failed to distinguish between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is believe. Unbelief is won't believe. Doubt is honest. Unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light. Unbelief is content with darkness, loving darkness rather than light. That's what Jesus attacked and attacked unsparingly. So he says, no, John's not in unbelief. He's struggling with doubt, and that's okay, and I'll help him. What the Pharisees and the Sadducees are doing, that is determined disbelief. That's not doubt. That's unbelief. And he ends by saying, verse 35, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. I love this statement. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Wisdom is vindicated by her children. It might look right now, Jesus is saying, it might look right now that John's right, that I'm not the Messiah, that I'm not the coming one, that I'm not the expected one. It might look right now that the bad guys are correct in their assessment of me thinking that I absolutely am a fraud. But just give it time. That's what he's pleading with John to do. Just give it time. Wisdom is vindicated by the offspring of what you're hoping in, what you've placed your wisdom in, what you're pursuing. You're not going to know tomorrow that it's accurate. In the short term, it actually looks like the unbelievers are right. Just fast forward a few months. You're going to see a, a woman have her son raised from the dead. Just fast forward a, a few more months. You're going to see Lazarus brought out of the tomb. Fast forward a few more days from there. You're going to see Jesus taking that long road around, coming in on Palm Sunday, 
and addressing the crowds as they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Fast forward a few more days from there, you're going to see Jesus hanging on a cross, and you think that wisdom has now been vindicated by the children of the unbelievers. He's a fraud. He died the death of a common criminal. He's not God. But just fast forward three days later, as he walks out of the tomb, wisdom is vindicated by her children. Wisdom is proved by the offspring of what the wisdom is saying. It'd be like in parenting, if I as a dad said, I don't believe in right and wrong. I don't believe in right and wrong. And I teach my kids that. What's that going to look like in five months? Probably not too different. What's that going to look like in five years? Probably a little bit different. What's that going to look like in 15 years? It's going to look a lot different. So the further out from that point of wisdom, the more we see the truthfulness. That's why we say a lot that time and truth go hand in hand. So Jesus says, just wait. Whatever your expectations about how I'm working, let those recalibrate as you trust, as you wait. Bring your doubt to me. I'll display my glory and show you that you can trust me. And I'm not going to condemn you for unbelief. Jesus tells the crowd, I was sent by the Father. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am God, very God. And he leaves it to us to say, do we believe it or do we reject it? What about you? What unmet expectations are you experiencing? Where are you struggling to trust God's work in your life today? God's plan for your life isn't what you thought it was going to be. What plan did you have for your life that isn't happening right now? And it's making you say, are you really the one? Or should I trust another? We're all like John the Baptist. And that's why I'm so grateful for this passage because Jesus doesn't turn him away. He doesn't condemn him. In fact, he takes time to say he's not an unbeliever. This is unbelief over here, and that's not John. You've seen Jesus conquer struggles that John has with the glory of his greatness in these miracles, confirming the trustworthiness of the word. But here before us this morning, and just no better sermon to launch us into communion, we have before us the glory of all glories. We have before us the reminder of the ultimate display of the goodness, the kindness, the graciousness, and the character of our God. We are this morning doing exactly what John did. John said, I'm struggling with doubt, and I'm going to Jesus, and I want to see his glory, and I want to know without a shadow of a doubt that he is who he claims to be. We gather this morning, and we say, Jesus, we have our doubts, but we're bringing them to you. We've heard from you, and now we see your greatness on display. That's what communion is. It's the greatness of God on display as we're reminded about the gospel. There is no greater display of the glory of God than the cross and the resurrection. And so if you're here this morning and you have doubts and you have unmet expectation and you have struggle, I am so glad you're here because today is the day for Jesus to speak to your heart through his word and through these elements to tell you, you can trust me. I did the hardest thing by dying for you. I did the, the greatest work by giving myself for you. Therefore, anything else is an easy thing for me to do. That's why we gather, to remind each other and to stare at the glory of God. It is, as it were, as if Jesus were taking these elements and just like John and the disciples going to Jesus saying, are you the guy? And Maybe Jesus, as they say that to him, he just looks at them and smiles. And he goes, watch this. 
I think here this morning, Jesus takes these elements and says, as we look and we go, are you the guy? I'm struggling. And Jesus says, watch this. Remember what I've done for you. I am the guy. I am your savior. And I am the one who can conquer every single doubt that you have and lead you safely home. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We are undone by your graciousness. We see on display in this text, you don't condemn John. In fact, you, you encourage him and you encourage us. There's no one born of woman that's greater than John. And he struggled with doubts and we will too. We do too. But that's not unbelief. And you will gladly do whatever it takes to reassure us by your word and by your gospel. So, Father, as we prepare our hearts now to partake of these elements, I pray that you and your grace would, would speak to our hearts now through the word that we've received by your spirit. Help us to be honest and open with our doubts, with our unmet expectations, to be honest with each other, to let these words reverberate in our souls and in our homes this afternoon and this evening. I pray that we would collectively together take each other to Jesus and even do that this, this morning and let you and your gospel and your greatness conquer our doubts. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for being near to us. Guide us now as we feast on Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. At this time, I'm going to ask uh, our, the, the men to come and take the, uh, the bread, to pass the bread out. We are going to sing while we pass the, the bread. We'll take the cup after that. And as the bread is passed, just hold it. Don't, don't take it yet because we'll be taking it together as a church family. But I, I want, as we sing,